Good morning, Alaska. Welcome to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. Since the 1970s, massive investments have been made into finding a cure or an effective treatment for dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Despite this huge investment, only one new drug has been approved for treating Alzheimer's and dementia since 2003, and even that is of questionable benefit. At the same time, the rates of dementia have steadily decreased at a rate of about 13% per decade in most developed countries. What do these declining numbers tell us, and what are the driving forces behind these numbers? Today's guests make the argument that this trend may be strongly linked to mid-20th century policies that reduced inequality, improved access to health care and education, and resulted in cleaner air, soil, and water. So what does that mean in this time of deregulation, hypercapitalism, and extreme individualism? Joining me today to shed some light on those questions and to discuss their new book, American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society, are Dr. Daniel George and Dr. Peter Whitehouse. Welcome to the program, gentlemen. I appreciate you both for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for having us, Prentice. We appreciate it. All right. Um, We're delighted to be here. Thank you. Uh, yes, we do have a lag. Uh, you were correct. <laughs> so we will see how that goes, and uh, we may have to um, disconnect and, and reconnect with, uh, with Dr. Whitehouse, um, but we'll see how it goes. I want to take a second to remind people that we appreciate listener participation. If you have a question for my guests, or a comment about today's topic, there are three ways to connect with us. If you're in the Anchorage area, our phone number is 550-8433. If you're listening outside of Anchorage, you can reach us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. And the last way is to email your questions to line1 at alaskapublic.org. We will do our best to get your answer your questions on the air or uh, get your phone call on the air. All right. Um, I guess let's start off uh, uh, with, um, uh, we can start with Dr. Dr. Whitehouse. Um, can you give us a little bit of your background and exactly, I mean, how did you get into this field? How did you kind of come up uh, and end up in the dementia and Alzheimer's uh, field working with that? Thank you, Prentice. Um I trained uh, as a neurologist um, at Johns Hopkins and also as a cognitive neuroscientist. And my work began uh, studying the brains of people with what we used to call Alzheimer's disease by a singular uh, noun. Uh, over the last 25 years, we've learned that it's not a single condition. I cared for patients with these uh, cognitive challenges and slowly came to see that the purely medical approach was not addressing either individual or social needs. So moved into public health and uh, most fortunately moved into collaboration with my good friend, Danny George. All right, Dr. George, give us a, a little background about yourself um, and how you guys uh, got to this point. Sure. So I grew up in Cleveland, which is sort of the anchorage of the Midwest. And uh, I used to volunteer at an adult uh, daycare facility in Cleveland. And it, it really impressed upon me at the time how important it was to hear the stories of people with memory loss, even if they perseverated or repeated the same stories over and over. 
how important it was to establish relationships through story, through human connection. So I uh, went to college uh, and um, did an independent study on Alzheimer's disease. And I studied a particular creative storytelling approach that's used in dementia care right now called time slips. Mm. And uh, that ultimately led me to uh, reaching out to, to Peter, who uh, was obviously a practicing neurologist in Cleveland. I was working as a maintenance man and garbage man in Cleveland at the time, but he gave me a job as a research assistant <laughs> uh, in 2008. We uh, wrote our book, uh, The Myth of Alzheimer's, and I ended up doing my doctoral research at the Intergenerational School in Cleveland uh, where, that he and his wife, Kathy, have started, which basically invites people with dementia as uh, mentors for uh, kids from Cleveland. Uh, Dr. Whitehouse, can you just as out of curiosity, when you mentioned that, um, can you talk a little bit about that? school and that that program sure and um danny and i started our edu our journey together um because my daughters went to the same high school danny uh, did okay and so that tells you the generational difference <laughs> um but it was his coming to me uh with this independent study that led us to thinking more about this power of, of narrative um that uh, we've described already so my wife uh, is also a psychologist, a, a developmental psychologist, who would evaluate kids with learning uh, problems in schools. And she kept saying, we need to change our schools. And I kept feeling that what older people who had uh, memory problems needed was a place to contribute to society. Uh, and um, so this notion that um, intergenerational learning, intergenerational relationships, intergenerational story sh sharing, was important to the brain health of both the youngsters uh, and the older folks, some of whom were my patients, um, uh, motivated us to create these three um, now public schools um, in, in Cleveland, although there are other activities in other parts of the world. All right, that's that sounds like a really neat, uh, neat approach. We've done a lot of shows here about the importance of connection um, in health, and it seems like that sort of uh, sort of the angle that that you were looking at when you wrote this book. And it, it took me, I didn't get through the introduction before I realized that this wasn't a quote-unquote normal book about dementia and brain health. And, you know, I found instead ideas about social democracy, hyper-capitalism, person-centered care, neoliberalism, collective resilience, uh, and social cuticles. A lot of things that I had to Google and uh, <laughs> kind of find out. Um, and that's just a few of, of the terms and stuff that you guys talk about. So it's a different kind of book and that, that addresses the brain, the aging brain through a different lens. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. George, can you kind of start us off with what triggered the idea? You wrote the start of the process in 2017, I think. Um, what triggered the idea to write this book? Yeah, that's a good place to start. So in 2016, we obviously had a major election in November of that year, um, but there were two major things that happened in the Alzheimer's field. So uh, the first being a, an anti-amyloid drug called solanuzumab uh, failed in its phase three clinical trial. We'll get more into the drug story later, but this was a sort of high profile uh, failure of a hyped up drug. And uh, around that time in November um, of 2016, there was also a landmark study that came out in the journal of the American Medical Association by our colleague Ken Langa at Michigan, 
showing that there was an actual reduction in dementia rates in the United States. And that's a finding that has been uh, observed elsewhere in, uh, in Western countries, but this established it in the United States. And so from that paradox, uh, you know, that biotechnology has been failing, um, solanuzumab just being the latest of many anti-amyloid drugs to fail at the cost of billions of dollars, um, dementia rates were nevertheless declining in the United States. And so, you know, the, the American Dementia, this new book project is sort of at the uh, at the interface of those of that paradox, trying to understand, well, what what is going on in the culture uh, that may have precipitated improved brain health for people who are now turning uh, into their grain, graying years and experiencing a, a re reduction in risk for dementia. And ultimately, you know, as you say, Prentiss, um, this forced Peter and I, who are, neither of whom are political scientists, to actually think in a political economic lens uh, about Alzheimer's disease, which we normally look at as a molecular riddle to be solved. But we really zoomed out in this book, try to understand at the public health and public policy level what has happened in the 20th century and the 21st century to both uh, modify brain health and also put us at greater risk for dementia. Right, because that's a, uh, I mean, that's a contradiction. We have an aging population um, that's going to grow. I mean, you hear about it with the Social Security conversation all the time. So you would expect increases um, in, in dementia and Alzheimer's, but actually, and are, are my statistics correct that there's been a, essentially a 13% decline every decade? Um, I just wanted to confirm that piece. Uh, Yes. Okay. That's, yes, that's right. So they've pooled the data from the United States, Canada, France, the Netherlands, and the United Kingdom, all of the countries where we've seen this decline. And uh, basically, they started looking in the 1980s uh, till, till today. And what they found is a 13% reduction of dementia risk for anybody turning old in, in those cohorts of elders per decade. So uh, if, you, if you turned uh, 65 plus uh, last decade, you have a 13%, you had a 13% less chance of uh, developing dementia than somebody who turned that age in the 2000s. The risk for specifically developing Alzheimer's disease is 16% uh, less per decade. So we're seeing okay. this sort of cumulative, gradual decline in risk overall. And that, I mean, that's interesting. And it's, it's also um, encouraging because, and for someone like me, it's hopeful because I have Alzheimer's uh, in, on both sides of my family. Um, I helped care for my grandfather as a high school senior um, my summer as he sort of declined. Uh, and it was, it's a huge fear. And as, as my father approached 74, which was the age at which it really popped out for my grandfather, he's every, every lapse in memory, couldn't remember a phone number or name. He thought, that's the end, right? It's it's coming for me. It's a huge fear, this Alzheimer's uh, disease and dementia, because people see it in their loved ones, and it's um, it, it's a it's a tough diagnosis to hear, and a lot of people have fear about it. So um, that was that was encouraging. But I do want to get back, uh, Dr. Whitehouse. Um, I would like you to explain sort of the name American dementia. Why did you come up with that as the title? for this book? So our operating title was just brain health in an unhealthy society, reflecting what Danny and I have been saying about the importance of paying attention to uh, the public health dimensions of and the, and the cultural dimensions of, of, of how we respond to these uh, challenges. And um, 
we came to have this sense that there was something wrong in the whole field uh, of Alzheimer's that they themselves didn't remember lessons from the pla uh, the past and were stuck in old ways of looking at uh, the condition, uh, particularly focusing on a protein called amyloid, which is at the center of this controversy with the FDA today. And we, we, we thought, well, if, 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 if we culturally we can't remember, we can't plan, and we're not doing terribly well with the health of our communities, um, activities of daily living is what we call them clinically, perhaps we should signal this uh, with a single two-word you know, uh, title to, to start to say this is a bigger problem with the way we all think about our brains and our aging, not just those people that we clinically label with something like Alzheimer's disease. So it's a cultural dementia. A cultural dementia. And you list some of the symptoms um, of this cultural dementia. And uh, I just want to read from uh, one of the, it says the onset of American dementia. Clinical dementia is a condition that affects individuals characterized by memory loss and other cognitive difficulties such as decision-making, language, and perceptions that impair activities of daily living, as you mentioned. Um, cultural dementia is a condition that affects communities characterized by collective patterns of dysfunction in thinking, valuing, and acting. And your argument is that over the past four decades of hyper-capitalism, society has sort of progressively been afflicted by an American dementia. Can uh, maybe, maybe uh, Dr. George, you can take us through some of those, um, I guess, you know, traits, or what are the what are the things that indicate what can we look at to say that is a some distorted or demented thinking yeah and let me let me start um before the dementia set in in the 70s you know one of the reasons we think that dementia rates are declining is because of the investments that we saw fit to make uh, in the sort of post-crisis of the the world wars and the great depression where we um, you know, implemented the GI Bill and provided education for tens of millions of Americans in the mid 20th century. Uh, we had uh, public uh, investments in smoking cessation campaigns that were extremely successful. Uh, we expanded Medicare and Medicaid, giving more people access to treatment for vascular risk factors, which we know are vital for, for brain health. Uh, we deleted gasoline. Um, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Right. And um, so all of those reflect a particular way of thinking about the organization of a society and investments that we make in one another in our collective health. But what happened in the 70s is that there was a similar uh, crisis point from stagflation and the oil shocks of that era. And um, what we saw was a sort of reorganization of our uh, political economy around different principles. So uh, whereas uh, the sort of social democratic post-war era was about public investments and regulation and putting brakes on capital mobility and those sorts of things, what, what the 70s launched was an era of hyper-capitalism, as you said, neoliberalism, this idea that we can um, sort of globally unleash the capital and money across national borders, deregulate industries, uh, defund social programs and privatize services, decrease the taxation of the wealthy, and uh, really um, sort of uh, there was an assault on unions for the last several decades as well. And that reordering of society um, has had massive uh, impact on our culture um, and, you know, really led to a, a situation where we're like we, we have falling lifespans in this country, right? We, we lost a whole year and a half of lifespan last year. And uh, uh, it's, 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 
not not a good reflection on the culture at all, uh, and it's certainly not good for brain health. Lifespan had been increasing, is that correct? And yeah, yeah, absolutely. For most of the 20th century, lifespan had had increased, right. um, and so until the last five years or so, we we've been seeing um, you know improvements in that area. But it's and it's not just lifespan either. I mean, we're seeing a resurgence in chronic disease. Uh, six in 10 Americans have uh, a chronic disease, according to the CDC. We have 80 million un or underinsured. Those are folks who, you know, may not be getting care for the vascular risk factors that we know, again, are a part of brain health. Um, and we have a national lead crisis on our hands, um, uh, which, you know, in, in cities across the country, not just in Flint, Michigan, where it's been particularly dramatic, uh, there, there's lead in drinking water. And then, um, you know, in contrast to the GI Bill era, we have uh, sort of falling total years of higher education in the cohorts that are uh, growing older now. And people are simply being priced out of college, right, because it's been marketized since the 1970s and underwritten by Wall Street. So all of these things that were protective for brain health in the mid 20th century, we're sort of seeing a turn of the tide now in the last several decades. Yeah, that's a I mean, those are really good points. I mean, you mentioned all of those things, those investments in in our collective health. Um, and some of the, the things you talk about as far as the onset of American dementia are things like alienation, disenchantment from nature, loss of trust, political disillusionment. Boy, that's uh, appropriate these days. Um, loss of foresight, inability to see connections and uh, psychological depression, anxiety are up. Um, as you mentioned, healthcare uh, or access to healthcare is, you know, obviously a a critical piece, but that is uh, getting more and more difficult, it seems like. Um, so all of those things combined uh, create this sort of, I don't know, going back in time, right? I mean, that's sort of the, that we've also lost um, our, lost those lessons from the past that we've learned uh, about what's working. But this book and the way you look at this is sort of a bird's eye view of the cultural, our whole, right? And um, I really like, I really like the message and, um, I would encourage, I encourage a lot of people to read this because it's not just a book about dementia. It's a book about social health. So with that as the foundation for our discussion, um, you guys make the argument that the medical com community has approached the treatment of Alzheimer's all wrong. Um, can you explain like, cause we, we see the declines in numbers and we would expect an increase. So um, and the, the improvements, certainly this decline is not linked to improvements in medicine and treatment, obviously. So what do you mean when you say we misunderstand the nature of Alzheimer's disease? And why do you, uh, one of you mentioned that you talk about it in Alzheimer's diseases. Uh, Dr. Whitehouse, can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Alzheimer's disease, as it's called by people, originates in the 1910 with Dr. Alzheimer in Germany. He was himself confused as to what he had described and its relationship to aging, for example. Um, but the major message that's misguided is that uh, this is uh, one thing that we can understand the genes, understand the proteins, and find the magic uh, pill. If we've learned anything in the last 25 years, it's that that singular noun is plural. It's a syndrome, it's a set of conditions. Mm. So it's not one thing that we can cure easily with a pill. And that is what 
why there's the controversy about aducanumab, which is another of these monoclonal uh, antibodies, that's the MABs, monoclonal antibodies, designed to remove amyloid for the, from the brain. But it's all about the power of one hypothesis, that amyloid is the key to curing Alzheimer's disease. And that hypothesis has been an, is an illustration of the American dementia, because it's all about making money for a variety of different people who want to promise things that they don't deliver and haven't been delivering for decades, and we're getting desperate. So they pushed the FDA to approve this drug uh, that was a, a mistake, a mistake that's being recognized by U.S. Congress, by payers, by clinicians. There's just a small, sometimes people call them a cabal, a small group of people that have been pushing this saying this is so desperate we'll try anything well in our opinion they're trying something that's close to nothing and so we really need to learn from this that disaster as danny called it earlier approval why how we can do things better to get better medications to focus on the medical side in a healthier way and to include the public health and the educational aspects we've been stressing are so important well, I'll tell you, I, like everybody else, when I heard about the FDA approving the first drug to treat Alzheimer's, I was very excited and I looked at it and then I was, I was underwhelmed um, by, by the, what it actually does. And maybe we can get into a little bit more. And then the, the amyloids that you're talking about, is that the plaque? Is that what the, that people talk about in the brain? Yes. Um, okay. Dr. Alzheimer described these amyloid plaques. They've been known for uh, for years. They don't. They occur in other conditions besides Alzheimer's. And importantly, for the story to challenge the importance of it, they occur in the brains of people who age normally, who don't have memory significant memory problems. So uh, this protein um, got a lot of attention because there are um, genetic abnormalities in rare families that can contribute to changes in the processing of this protein. And so I'm not saying it's not unimportant, right. but it's not the dominant story or should not be the dominant story. Okay. Well, we will get back to that in just a second, but we are up against our first break. So if you're just tuning into the program, I am discussing the book, American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society with the authors, Daniel George, Dr. Daniel George and Dr. Peter Whitehouse. If you have a question for my guests, a comment about today's topic, please give us a call or send us an email. Our Anchorage phone number is 550-8433. You can reach us toll-free from wherever you might be listening at 1-888-353-5752. And the last way to get your question to us is to email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. Got to spell out line one, L-I-N-E-O-N-E. After this short break, we'll continue our conversation about brain health in an unhealthy society. I'm Prentice Pemberton. You're listening to Line One, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone is excited for the 2021-2022 school year. It's important to prepare for an active year ahead. Whether you play competitive sports or just enjoy being active, it's important to make your overall health a priority. So get your COVID-19 vaccine, stay active and involved, check in with friends and family, and bounce back from COVID together and make it a great year. This message sponsored by the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services.
Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just tuning in, the topic of today's program is the aging brain. My guests are Dr. Daniel George and Dr. Oh, I got Peter George. It's uh, Peter Whitehouse, um, who together co-authored the new book, American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. If you have a question for us today or a comment about today's topic uh, or a story or um, just something you want to share with us, please give us a call. Our Anchorage phone number, 550-8433. Toll free, we can be reached at 188-353-5752. And you can e- email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. All right, I have a email here uh, from a listener who asks a question that follows up with, or it leads right into to my question, because the, the question I have is, do we really... Um, know anything about what causes dementia and Alzheimer's and are there risk factors that people need to know about and address if they want to slow the cognitive decline, which we all do. Um, So I'll read this and you can answer her question and then maybe go into some more detail. Uh, Whoever wants to take the the medical piece or um, whoever knows more about that in case. Uh, so here's the question. In case you have some time for general questions regarding Alzheimer's, I'm wondering if exposure to radiation to the head can tr- could contribute to severe Alzheimer's. My mom was an x-ray technician in the late 40s. On top of that, she was treated for acne with radiation doses to her face. She got Alzheimer's in her late 70s, lasted five years, had a lot of moaning and could not communicate in her last years. She passed at 83, and her siblings did not get it. Um, That was from Lisa. Thank you for the question, Lisa. And um, I know that struggle. That is is not fun to care uh, for a parent or anyone who is is struggling with that. So um, which one of uh, uh, you doctors would like to sort of tackle that first? Why don't I um, start with the kind of question about the x-rays? Okay. um, uh, and and let me first say to to your your uh, emailer and to you, Prentice, we are really um, stressed that our message is is one of hope. It's just a different kind of a message that says we're going to have to work together to solve some of these problems. Right. So um, there's no known association between X-rays to the brain that I'm aware of, and it's been looked at. Um, and the development of so-called Alzheimer's disease with plaques and tangles. That's not to say that, for example, things like head injuries and other other things you can do to damage uh, your, your brain are important in terms of how your brain uh, is um, at the end of your life. The cause of having memory problems uh, at the end of life are multiple. They, they do include um, medical uh, uh, issues, uh, uh, you know, uh, exposure of the of the brain to drugs that can uh, can can damage the brain. Uh, uh, that um, there's the, the, a long list there, but um, the the basic causation uh, of Alzheimer's is a place where we need to remind folks that it is diseases. It's right. part of a larger class called dementia, and that. Uh, there are many, many uh, other factors which Danny might want to elaborate that can cause that that relates to this smoking and uh, vascular risk factors and some of the things he's mentioned already. 
Yeah, yeah, I can definitely add to that. So Peter has talked about Alzheimer's as being a syndrome or, you know, Alzheimer's diseases. And the reason is that if you actually look at the, the brains of people who have Alzheimer's disease, you very rarely just see plaques and tangles, right? You often see vascular changes, small strokes in the brain or other abnormal proteins or white matter disease. There's a lot happening in the constellation of what we lump under that singular label of Alzheimer's disease. But what, what that means for prevention is that there are a lot of pathways to brain aging that we can affect. So one of the hopeful messages, and you know, we, we, we talk, as Prentice said, at the bird's eye view of, of Alzheimer's, but let's zoom in to the you know, individual risk level. One of the encouraging um, uh, uh, pieces of, of, of research to come out in the last few years is that it appears that about 40% of dementias are amenable to uh, risk factors that we can control. Uh, so as Peter is saying, uh, we know that because vascular disease is a part of this uh, syndrome of, of dementia, uh, that minimizing diabetes and treating hypertension, not smoking, um, uh, reducing midlife obesity, all of those things are very helpful. As Peter said, preventing head injuries, um, exercising, avoiding excess alcohol and drug abuse. If you have any hearing impairments, getting treated for, uh, for those uh, earlier in your life is vital. Uh, attaining you know high levels of education or just challenging your brain over the course of your life and let me just pick up on that last point we want to encourage people to think about alzheimer's not just as a single disease at the end of life but rather you know sort of a lifespan condition and you have many inputs at, at every stage of your life even in the womb you know if you're exposed to a neurotoxin like lead in the womb you know it's going to affect your brain development and uh, that goes for for children uh, all the way to adults so um there is an, an optimistic message here that a lot of the risk for dementia is amenable to our um, our behaviors and our, uh, our our lifestyle changes. Um, but the bigger question, which Prentice has, has thankfully um, foregrounded today, is how do we organize societies that um, imp improve or ensure brain health for the most number of people? Right. That's sort of collective health. So um, if we're thinking about that and... It was really it was interesting the myths and misconceptions about Alzheimer's disease, and so I'm interested in uh, maybe um, Dr. Dr. Whitehouse can can start this off. But what are some of the myths or misconceptions besides the the plaque um, tangles as being the one of the main causes? I guess uh, what are some of the myths and misconceptions that um, people you know think on a regular basis, and and what what does that tell us? What does the research tell us about what we thought we knew? And maybe y'all can talk briefly about the Nun study, which was interesting. Well, uh, Danny is um, is our Nun expert, so I'll I'll pass that one to him in a <laughs> okay. second. Um, the, uh, the 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 and I'll plug our our, our first book together, "The Myth of Alzheimer's: uh, What You Aren't Being Told About Today's Most Dreaded Diagnosis," because it actually asks that question, answers that question, or tries to, uh, Brennis. The first one is worthwhile repeating. It is that Alzheimer's disease is not one condition. So if you start thinking about it as multiple things caused by multiple different circumstances, sometimes as a clinician, we would say, if you've seen one person with Alzheimer's, you've seen one person with Alzheimer's because hmm. everybody's Alzheimer's disease is variable at numerous different levels. The other that was more contentious, um, and we've already addressed to this, and it, it relates to the Nun study as well, is if you Google the myth of Alzheimer's, they will say 
uh, although our book is uh, cranking up in the in the in the ratings, the myth that the, the dominant story is that the myth is that Alzheimer's disease is related is unrelated to aging. It mm. actually is related to aging uh, because aging is the greatest risk factor for it. So th this idea that we don't really fundamentally understand, even today, over 100 years after Dr. Alzheimer was confused by the same issue, what's the relationship between the various forms of Alzheimer's disease and the various forms of brain aging? And that's a kind of key question, because if you say we're trying to cure brain aging, that sounds like a lot of a, a harder issue than trying to con uh, you know, cure one specific disease. And we're just saying, let's open our eyes to the cities of this issue of the relationship to aging. All right, Dr. George, you want to talk about the, the Nun study and what that told us? Explain that a little bit. Yeah, I love this study. It's It's been replicated, but the nuns were sort of the first to show this very simple uh, but powerful uh, finding that people can have amyloid and tangles the am, uh, alzheimer's related pathology on their brains and still maintain cognitive functioning as peter alluded to earlier uh you know upwards of 40 percent of normally aged people have you know quote unquote alzheimer's type pathology and so what what this underscores is another very hopeful concept that we want to uh, push out to people which is cognitive reserve so this is the the somewhat mysterious effect in the brain where if you take care of your brain if you Put yourself in novel learning environments for instance listening to this show every day um, you know challenging your mind to learn new things uh, there appear to be structural and functional benefits to the brain whether it's producing new neurons and synapses or creating new pathways through which uh, we can think around different um, problems in the in the face of neurodegeneration that may happen as we age there appears to be a way that we can stay resilient uh, as as we age and the nuns are a particularly interesting community because these are women who live with purpose as part of a the thick bonds of their uh, of their um, their their community they have um, you know they stay mentally stimulated they learn they uh, continually challenge themselves and there are lessons there for the rest of us which is that you know um, brain health is not just an individual project it's a, a function of our, our, our bonds with other people, with our place in a community, uh, with our relationship to the natural world, as Peter alluded to before. So we need, you know, we need to think in a more enriched and less atomized and alienated way about what it means to think about brain health. All right, uh, Dr. George, what did, I mean, explain what the Nun study was. It was for our listeners, was it, uh, uh, how long did it last and what were the findings? Right. So they, they looked in the 90s at uh, several hundred nuns who were part of this uh, community, and uh, the nuns graciously donated their brains to science afterwards. And when they looked at the, the, the pathologies in, in the age, aging brains, they basically found that, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, many of them had the pathology consistent with Alzheimer's disease, and yet they didn't have clinical dementias. Hmm. And that, again, underscores the, the, the power of this un idea of cognitive reserve right. uh, and, and being able to, you know, sort of be resilient to age-related changes. Even if you have some of Alzheimer's syndrome, neuro neuropathologically speaking, you can still be vital cognitively. All right. My dad became a Sudoku expert in his <laughs> late 60s and you know early 70s. He approached that age. Um, now he's 83 and having, I think, 83. He'll have to forgive me if I got it wrong. But um, 
but he really exercised. I mean, we were talking about exercising your brain, right? Essentially. We, like, we are. Okay. Um, and um, there are many ways to do that. Um, the most important thing is to do something. And the most second most important thing is to do something that you find entertaining. And the third, and I might actually bump that up, is to find purposeful activity, as Danny said, the nuns did. And that comes back to the studies that Danny did for his uh, PhD in our intergenerational schools, where he showed that uh, some of the people that I mentioned, my patients who volunteered to work with the kids did better uh, as a result of that brain activity, which they found very enjoyable and meaningful and, and purposeful. There's a lot out there. Uh, Danny and I have written about this as the marketplace of memory, uh, the posit science and um, and numosity. Uh, these are companies that try to convince you that they have the magic app. Right. Well, there isn't a magic app, just as there isn't a magic pill. There's individualized things to keep your act your brain active that you can find, and you should, because being a couch potato is not good for any organ in your body. No, and you know when you're speaking about nuns and connection and education and continuing to you know do service work, um, I was thinking about my my grandparents and um, and how much even at late stages where they couldn't speak or, or do much, when you bring children, uh, their grandchildren into the room, uh, they would light up and could engage, and and that was pretty late stage. Um, I remember my grandfather had not spoken in, I don't know, a couple of months and uh, couldn't remember our names. And some friends of his came from that he had been in Japan or in, uh, in China with uh, years and years ago. And they came and he hadn't seen them in 30 years. And he lit up and that man talked for 15, 20 minutes with them and talk, told stories. And then they left and he collapsed. But it really, that connection, it triggered something and brought him back. So I'm thinking about, um, you know, that the importance of connection and community and isolation. I think about people living and watching TV and eating bad food. And I mean, those are all huge risk factors um, for, for dementia and as we age. So the first big mistake, um, as you highlight in the book, is this idea that we could somehow see what causes Alzheimer's and then fix that thing. Um, the second big mistake you talk about the book is this paradigm, and you've mentioned it. Uh, in fact, we're going to go ahead and take our 40-minute our break before you answer this question, so I'll let you guys think about who wants to answer it. But the paradigm of medicalized, monetized, and individualized brain age, aging and how that has driven us off course when it comes to treating Alzheimer's. So. Um, we will come back uh, to that uh, after our break. So if you're just tuning in, the topic of today's program is the aging brain. My guests are Dr. Daniel George and Dr. Peter Whitehouse, who together co-authored the new book, American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. After this short break, we'll continue our conversation about dementia and the aging brain. I'm Prentice Pemberton. You're listening to Line One, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. Line One, Your Health Connection comes to you from Alaska Public Media and is made possible with support from Providence Imaging Center, committed to the well-being of Alaskans, staff, and the community since 1986. 
provimaging.com. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just tuning into the program, I'm discussing the book American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society with the authors Dr. Daniel George and Dr. Peter Whitehouse. If you have a question for us today or a comment about our topic, please give us a call or send us an email. You can reach us with your questions or comments in three ways. In Anchorage, our phone number is 550-8433. We are, uh, you can reach us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. And you can email your questions to line one at alaskapublic.org. I have gotten uh, eight or nine <laughs> emails in the last five minutes, and this is how it usually works. As we're winding down, uh, I get a lot of questions. So we'll get into some of those. But um, let's talk about the medicalized, monetized, and individualized brain aging and, and how that's driven us off course. Sure, I can I can hop in there. Let me just briefly. I thought that story you shared about your father was really powerful, Prentice. And I, one of the myths that we tackle is not scientific in nature, but cultural in nature, which yeah. is this idea that Alzheimer's always causes a loss of self, right? Uh, and we know that that's not true. And even worse than a loss of self is a loss of place. So kind of pulling people who have these diagnoses out of community, you know, putting them on couches, denying them the relationships with grandkids or old friends that they used to have. That's a, a major problem. There was just a great um, 60 Minutes episode people may have seen about Tony Bennett, uh, you know, who's struggling with with age-related challenges of his own uh, memory. And, uh, you know, the, the scene I saw showed him kind of backstage and his wife was trying to uh, coach him and what he was going to have to do. And, you know, he was having trouble remembering once he went out on stage, those familiar sights and mm. sounds of the crowd exhilarated him in the way that uh, your, your dad's friends, you know, brought him back to life. And I think as caregivers, we really need to think about how do we put people back in those thick relationships, those bonds that make us human. Uh, and so I, I really appreciated you sharing that uh, with us and just a pivot from that to a, a less positive <laughs> message that, yeah, this marketplace of memory that Peter alluded to is, is really um, sort of insidious. This is a billion dollar industry that is targeting everybody out there right now, including, you know, boomers and millennials and zoomers, all of whom have to exist in this uh, service and knowledge industry marketplace where our brains really matter. Um, but uh, the, there will be endless products marketed to, uh, you know, supplements, nutraceuticals, the brain training games that Peter alluded to, apps. And I think we just need to ask ourselves, you know, to what degree are, are these individualized products sold to atomized consumers going to actually make a, an improvement in brain health. In fact, the data shows that, you know, th th these companies overpromise what these products can do for people's brains, that the FTC and other regulatory bodies have had to crack down on some of these products. And again, I, I encourage people to think about, you know, being sort of discrete, isolated consumers of these things vis-a-vis the idea of an intergenerational school or volunteering in community and the cognitive dynamism that requires and the relationships that that forges. And, uh, you know, again, think of brain health uh, juxtaposed in those two examples and which, which one do we really think is going to make a difference for people? All right. I got a, and, oh, go ahead. No, no, just the, the, the juxtaposition, the word medicine and money just 
provokes this comment as a position. It's it's far too much about the money uh, and and far too little about um, the professionalism and our 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 social commitment uh, to uh, to help people. But just follow the money, whether it's in healthcare or in society at large. And the and the approval of aducanumab can be explained in part by who benefits from that. Right. And unfortunately, it's not people with dementia. All right, uh, an email I want to read. Um sent in from uh from bd which is great to hear from from her um can you and your guests help us or my guests because i don't know the answer understand the differences <laughs> and similarities between the two conditions we're talking about alzheimer's and dementia so uh, dr whitehouse can you sort of what's so the distinction this is probably the most com commonly uh, asked question and um it's a good question of course and the fact that uh, it's still being asked uh, is not just that Lay people are confused, but physicians and experts are confused. The simple answer, which is underneath it complicated, is that dementia is a broader category of things that affect your cognition. So somebody who has a, a brain tumor or a head injury uh, at, at a young age, it, it, it's just anything that affects your thinking abilities when you used to be able to think proper, normally. Alzheimer's is said to be one specific and a common cause of this larger uh, condition, uh, dementia. But because Alzheimer's, as we said, is more than one thing, and, and, and many dementias are mixed, a combination of factors. As I said before, everybody's Alzheimer's is their own Alzheimer's. Uh, we, we get uh, continually confused about the two. And the experts try to give you this simple answer, and many people don't buy it, and they shouldn't. It's a much more complicated issue than just one is a broad category and one's a narrow one. All right. I wish I could get to all these emails. Um, we're probably gonna not, not going to get to because I do want to talk um, more about what we do um, as a culture to improve this. But uh, we do have a, a phone call that I want to get to. Uh, Bonnie in Fairbanks, you're on line one. Go ahead. Hi, Francis. I just want to thank you guys. This has been a really helpful show. Um, I've been listening really closely because my grandmother is 102, and she still lives on her own here in Fairbanks, grew up here, and she's just really amazing. And I kind of wanted to ask, you know, why is she doing so well? But then you brought up the nun study, <laughs> and at one point she was a nun, um, but not for very long, obviously. She had six kids then. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I'm her granddaughter. But my mother, who is 80, has dementia, and she's not doing as well as my grandmother. And I just, it's more, I guess, more of a comment that, yeah. I don't know. I just um, thought that was interesting and wondered what, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, all right. Well, thank you for the call, Bonnie. I, uh, yeah, that's what everybody wonders. Who gets it? Who doesn't? Um, what do we, another email is, what do we do to protect ourselves? And, um I think one of these emails sums it up. We're stressing, it says we're stressing the importance of not only social interaction, but specific diet, intermittent fasting, sleep, physical exercise, meditation, brain challenging games or activities, um, and purpose and passion, right? So uh, those are, I mean, to answer several of the questions, what can we do to protect ourselves? I think that kind of sums it up pretty well um, in a lot of ways, doesn't it, Dr. Whitehouse? It sure does. Um, and just to package it together, I often say dancing. 
hmm. is a great example of putting those together. It's yeah. social, it's physical, it's it's often about a story, it's music. And, and let's just reiterate, because uh, Danny mentioned Tony Bennett started singing those songs he's been singing for years. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, people would have said, he has Alzheimer's disease, I don't see it. So, you know, engaging in Sudoku as your dad did or uh, dance, but just keeping your body moving, keeping your mind active and uh, keeping a part of community. You, you said it all, Prentice. Well done. And I do want to ask a question that somebody else asked that I have always been curious about and never got a great answer. But what's the uh, is there a genetic marker? Is there a test that can tell us whether we're at risk or is there is there a known genetic link? So that's a complicated and important question as well. There are different kinds of Alzheimer's. We've been saying that before. The Some people unfortunately get it at a very early age, and I mean 40, 50, and 60. And if they do that, if they have it at that early age, there is a, a chance that they have a specific genetic uh, association uh, with that, uh, a mutation in uh, one of uh, three different chromosomes. That's rare, that's less than 1% of individuals. Uh, but if you have a young uh, person with memory problems at a very young age, you think about the possibility of it being that strong genetic form. There are other, uh, what are called not causative, but susceptibility genes that can change your risk for dementia, um, not just Alzheimer's. And one I'll just mention, cause it's, you can even get it from uh, uh, consumer t- genetic testing, which I think is a bad idea. I wouldn't recommend doing this. It's called apolipoprotein E. It's a particular gene that one form, the four form is associated with an increased risk. So genetics have provided some clues. Uh, and I'm not, we're not, even though we're, we're talking against molecules and genes and saying there's a bigger picture here, part of the bigger picture is to focus on some of these uh, clues from genetics. But it's complicated, and, yeah. and if you have concerns about it, you should seek out somebody who's knowledgeable, like a genetic counselor. Yeah, and it's interesting. And one of the points in the book is like, so many of us are afraid of it, but so few of us actually go to a doctor and talk about it. So that's what, if you have fear about it, I would encourage people seek out a physician and and have these discussions. Um, as we get to the end of our show, I want to talk about the. Uh, or maybe uh, Dr. George, you can take us through the echo psychosocial model of healthcare that you guys really are promoting, um, and talk about that a little bit and what that means. Yeah, so this is a concept that Peter, I'll credit Peter with promoting it. But uh, you know, we normally in medicine talk about biopsychosocial right. health or biopsychosocial spiritual health, and that's a really good model. But I think, you know, uh, if we enlarge our thinking about Alzheimer's disease, as Peter and I are encouraging, we do have to start thinking about uh, the environment, the ecology that we're a part of. Um, obviously, climate change looms in the background and uh, will have an impact on our brains uh, as the weather warms, uh, as, 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 as climate changes. Just one example, um, you know, diseases will spread differently. It's something we're dealing with right now, obviously, all of us during this pandemic. Uh, wars are often uh, exacerbated or started by 
climate change and competition over uh, resources like water, um, you know, traumatic brain injuries from warfare, modern warfare are a major uh, contributor to, to dementia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're just encouraging a larger lens to think about what we talk about when we talk about brain health. All right. Um, one of the main points in the book is um, that reducing dementia lo- lies in preventing prevention and improving our collective resilience to dementia. You also point out, I mean, minority populations are at higher risk, but your argument is that poverty, racism, and classism um, are really the culprits. It's not the genetics of, of different people. Uh, can um, one of you... I, I, Dr. Whitehouse, can you tackle that, or is that more in in Dr. George's line? Well, it, it's like many of the issues that you're identifying, Prentice. It lies at the boundaries. Um, uh, the The idea that um, that that categories like um, race even have a a biological uh, 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 factor that relates to uh, risk for dementia. It, it, it masks the the bigger issues, and one of the bigger issues I'll highlight, and then Danny can certainly elaborate, is income inequity. Uh, I mean, neoliberalism, this this word that Danny taught me to use, this idea that it's all about markets, it's all about money, it's all about individualism, has led to a world, literally, uh, where the divides between the haves and the have-nots are increasing, and that division, income inequity, is a huge predictor of whether uh, people are going to have brain health uh, uh, problems. Uh, and unfortunately, it's still growing. So yes, the, all these factors um, are, are, are critical, but it relates largely to where you live, your zip code, the, the kinds of equality of the environment. And I will put a plug in for nature here. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the climate crisis is really a, a huge, larger problem looming over us that we need to find out how to use this this misconception we have around brain aging to help us understand better our relationships to nature and our responsibilities for each other and other living creatures. Dr. If George, I can add to that. Yeah, I do want to have you build on that. Um, and really in the in light of what's happening in our country and in the world um, with the increased conflict and and all that. So go ahead and and add to that but uh yeah that it seems like we're moving in the opposite direction and then maybe you can elaborate on where we need to go absolutely so we have a whole chapter in the book devoted to the fight for 15 movement this is the movement of fast food workers who are pushing for a living wage and we use that to explore how poverty affects the brain uh, or just being a member of the working class, how that affects the brain. So, you know, we've talked about nutrition already, and we know from uh, many, many studies that a Mediterranean and DASH diet, you know, diets that are high in fruits and vegetables, low in, lower in red meat, uh, et cetera, low in sodium are good for your brain health. And if you're poor, you have a much harder time um, uh, sustaining those types of diets. You have a harder time exercising. If you're working multiple gig economy jobs, piecing jobs together, you have more stress and depression in your life. We know that those are major risk factors for dementia. Uh, It puts people at higher risk for substance abuse. Uh, Folks who are poor have lower access to education, formal education. We know, obviously, from what we've talked about already, how protective that can be. People are more likely to have environmental exposure to things like lead, which is a known neurotoxin and a a risk factor for uh, heart disease, more exposure to air pollution and pesticides in central Pennsylvania, where I live now, uh, poor people are more likely to live near fracking sites, for instance. 
and, and so all of these things in some mean that if you were in a lower class position in this country, you were at, uh, you know, exposed to different social determinants of brain aging, uh, which is, is not a good thing. And so when we think at the larger level, what can we do? Um, you know, obviously we'll have to wait into politics briefly here, but you know, if we could provide healthcare for everybody, we would be controlling vascular risk factors much better. We wouldn't have this situation where 80 million are, you know, on or underinsured and not getting frontline quality care. Uh, we could universalize higher education and vocational training for people. We know that that will build cognitive reserve for generations hence. Uh, we could guarantee jobs and living wages for people to, you know, reduce the precarity and anxiety in people's lives. And we could tackle the lead crisis uh, right. that I mentioned in our, in our drinking water. And then lastly, I'll just say, you know, we could also, uh, you know, for those of us who have been caregivers, we could provide national long-term care insurance for people uh, and ensure that there's quality care for everyone, uh, you know, either in institutional care or in-home care. Um, I think it's kind of unconscionable that we don't have that in place like countries like Japan do, but uh, that's another story for another day. <laughs> yeah, there are entire communities built around supporting um, people with dementia as they age. And, and uh, that is that would be a good show just to look into the details um, of those communities and what people are doing well. Uh, but we're sort of uh, at the end of our show. So I'd like each of us just to give us some final thoughts on um, on what you want people to take away from our conversation today. And we can start with uh, Dr. Whitehouse. No, I'm going to just say that the mission of our intergenerational schools that we talked about earlier are lifelong learning, which is kind of a no-brainer, so to speak, for a school, but it's also spirited citizenship. So as Danny said in the beginning, we're not political scientists, but we do believe that probably the best thing you can do for brain health is listen to NPR and participate actively as a citizen <laughs> in the complicated decisions we have to make in this country going forward. All right, Dr. George, 10 seconds. Yeah, I'll just say I am thrilled that people were, uh, you found this a stimulating conversation. You can find us at americandementia.com or the myth of Alzheimer's on Facebook. We'd be happy to continue the conversation with people there. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate you both so much for taking the time out of your day to join me. I know you're both busy, so thank you very much. All right. Please check out our website for links and information about today's topic, and you can let us know your thoughts at line1onalaskapublic.org. My thanks to producer Adeline Baxter and audio engineer Tobin Shelby. For all of us at Line One, thanks for taking the time to listen today. Until next time, I'm Prentice Pemberton. Have a great day, Alaska. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the host and participants, and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.